Well, make sure you keep your Bibles open there to Ephesians 6, and please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for our good, to learn how we are to live in the light of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Please teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To start, I want us to exercise our imaginations just a little bit. I want you to imagine that you are a household slave in first century Ephesus. You're the first to wake up in the morning to prepare everything for the family, last to go to bed at night, cooking, cleaning, fixing things around the house, attending to guests, doing the work that no one else wants to do. It's a lot of work, it's a hard life, but you know other slaves have it harder. And your master has changed the past few months. He's started going to this thing called church. You've noticed some differences. He doesn't get drunk anymore. He's not violent. He's gentler with his wife and children, even with you. You have some friends across the road who serve another master. And it was their master who invited yours to church. And recently their master took them to church too. They, they said they loved it straight away. First of all, they get some time off work. Then they get a good meal. And most amazing of all, people treat everyone there like family even the slaves. They call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Your friends have started following Jesus and you can see more joy in their lives. They're talking about being free, even though they're still slaves. How God's word teaches that being free from sin and death is so much greater. You've wanted to go, but your master hasn't invited you. Then Saturday night, as you're serving dinner to the family, the master says, I'd love you to come to church with us tomorrow. This is great. You're finally going to see what your friends have been talking about. Sunday afternoon, it's a short walk to church in a local merchant's house. He's a wealthy merchant, so it's a big house, and there's a room big enough to fit 50 people in it. You see your friends, and you get leave from your master to go and sit with them. A leader stands up to welcome everyone. He says this week, they received a letter from someone called Paul, and he's going to read it out for everyone. It's fascinating to listen to. Your ears perk up as you hear what would later be known as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Look at it in your Bibles, where Paul says, we have been redeemed. That's the word usually used for redeeming slaves, for freeing them. But it's not freedom from slavery Paul's talking about. It's freedom from sin. As this man keeps reading, you realize that Paul's addressing much bigger issues than you normally think about. He's talking life and death, sin and judgment, wrath and mercy. You normally get so caught up in the busyness of the day-to-day that you don't think about the bigger picture. But Paul says what the bigger picture is there in chapter 1, verse 10. God's big picture is uniting all things in Jesus. It's a huge vision. It's not just a plan for your household or for Ephesus or even for the Roman Empire. This is a plan for the whole universe, to unite all things in Jesus. And as you look around the room, you you get a sense of what he's talking about. You see people from different nations and backgrounds, slave and free, men and women, boys and girls, joining together in love under Jesus. It's incredible learning about this grand plan of God. And what he says in chapter 1, verse 11, well, that blows your mind. In Jesus, he says, we have obtained an inheritance an inheritance. He'd never dreamed of an inheritance. An inheritance 
from the Lord of the universe for an insignificant slave like yourself. It's incredible. But he says that Jesus has secured it. When he gets to chapter 2, you realize that you're dead in your sins, like Paul says. And when Paul says you can be saved from judgment by God's free gift, by his grace, you know you want that. You want to trust in Jesus. This is the best news ever. It's, it's news of life, eternal life. Your heart fills with joy. And then Paul spells out what this new life in Jesus looks like. He gets to the end of chapter 5 and says what it means for husbands and wives. The husband is to love his wife so deeply like Jesus loves his people. It's unlike anything you've heard before. Then, in what seems like a crazy move, he addresses children at the beginning of chapter 6. I mean, who addresses children? It's so unimportant. Then chapter 6, verse 5. Look at it there in your Bibles. Bond servants. What? This great Christian leader, Paul, is going to address bond servants? No one ever addresses them, bond servants. You mean to say that this great plan to unite everything in Jesus isn't just for a Sunday? It's not just for husbands and wives, parents and children? This is for the lowest of the low? It's for bond servants? For slaves? Yes, that's what it means, Paul writes. And what he writes is awesome. He says to obey your earthly masters. And that's the point. There's another master in this relationship now, a heavenly master, and he changes everything. At the end of verse 9, he reminds masters, masters that they and their slaves have the same master in heaven, and he doesn't play favorites. This is incredible. It's, it's liberating, not in the sense that you're suddenly free from slavery. It's liberating in a much bigger way. You realize that you and your master are actually equals. You both answer to the same master in heaven. He has an obligation to you, just like you do to him. In, in a way, you don't really care about being a slave anymore. You just want to serve Jesus. And Paul's saying that's what you do when you serve your master well. You're free to work with joy for Jesus now. You can serve Jesus, even as you serve your earthly master. This is life-changing. And as you look across the room at your master, you can see he's been taking things on board too nodding along. He's no longer going to treat you as an object to be used, but as a person, another human being who answers to the same master as he does. You leave the meeting knowing that nothing will be the same. Okay, if I can pull you out of your imagination back to the 21st century, I hope that little exercise, it gave you an idea of how life-transforming Paul's words here were for slaves and masters. They're truly wonderful verses here in Ephesians. So you know where we're going for the rest of our time. I've got two headings. The first heading is what this passage meant then, and the second heading is what this passage means now. But before I get to the first heading, I just want to acknowledge that many of us will find this passage unsettling because it addresses slavery at all. There's so much we could cover about this, and much has been written but it would detract from the purpose of the passage that Paul's written for us here. Paul isn't trying to start a slave rebellion in the Roman Empire. He was giving very practical directions on how to live with Jesus as Lord when you wake up on Monday morning. I want to say, if you do have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, one thing that you could do is, I'll come to the little side chapel at the front left of the church, straight after church, and if you've got 
further questions about the slavery issue, I'm very happy to try and answer them as best I can. But, but just let me say two quick things now. The first thing to say is that when most of us think of slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade. Race-based slavery where people were stolen from their homelands. We need to be clear that this is strictly forbidden in the Bible. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it lists enslavers in a vice list along with murderers. Exodus 21, 16 says that anyone who steals a man to sell him shall be put to death, as shall anyone found in possession of him. It's hard to get clearer than this. It's no wonder that it was Christians like William Wilberforce who were at the vanguard of abolishing the slave trade. The second thing to say is that we need to be careful of oversimplifying things. Unfortunately, in first century Rome, Caesar wasn't interested in obeying the Bible. So like it or not, the Roman Empire was filled with slaves. But there was a huge diversity of slaves. Some slaves' conditions were absolutely terrible. Being sent to the mines as a slave was basically a death sentence. Some slaves' conditions were so good that people aspired to their positions, like slaves in Caesar's household. And then there was everything in between, from farmers to sailors to the many household slaves. It was the widest form of employment. Many people would sell themselves into slavery because they would enjoy better living conditions inside the master's home than they would on the streets. What I'm trying to say is that we need to beware of oversimplification. So here's what one commentator said after surveying the literature on Roman slavery. He said, slavery was diverse in practice and ideology, and it is difficult to generalize. Treatment of slaves varied from protection and provision to abuse and exploitation. He said it mattered less that someone was a slave than whose slave one was. It mattered less that someone was a slave than whose slave one was. Now, I know there's so much more that could be said, so much more that could be asked. And so, again, if you do want to ask more questions, please do come and see me front left of the church uh, straight after our time. But for now, I want to move on to our first heading, what it meant then. And the most important thing it meant was that everyone had a new master. I mentioned it before, but if you look at Ephesians 6, verse 5, it refers to earthly masters because slaves needed to be conscious of their heavenly master. The middle of verse 5, it says, to serve as you would serve Christ. The middle of verse 6, he says, to serve as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord and not to men. In the parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 24, it's even more explicit, and it says to slaves, you are serving the Lord Christ. And it's not, it's not just the slaves who needed to be conscious of a new master. It was the masters as well. Do you see at the end of verse 9, Paul addresses the masters. It says, masters, you need to know that you have the same master in heaven that the slaves have. This completely transforms the relationship between slaves and masters. Whereas Aristotle said, a slave is a living tool, Paul says, no, slaves are precious people bought with the blood of Christ. Whereas Seneca said to treat all slaves as enemies, in the book of Philemon, Paul said believing slaves and masters were brothers. There is a new master in the master-slave relationship, and this master is the Lord Jesus, the one who became a slave, who came to serve and not to be served. Jesus turned things upside down. Jesus put slavery 
in a new perspective. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says that slaves, they should gain their freedom if they're able to. But he also says, if they can't gain it, don't let it bother them. He says, if you can't gain your freedom as a slave, don't let it bother you. And if we don't get this, we don't understand Christianity. Becoming a Christian is so much greater than our circumstances. Paul says, don't let it bother you if you're a slave or not. He says, he who is a bondservant is the Lord's freedman, and he who is free is a bondservant of Christ. Following Jesus puts it all in perspective. The number one concern for both slaves and masters is, is serving the new master, Jesus. And do you see here how God dignifies the work of slaves so, so beautifully? He says when a slave serves his master, he's actually serving Jesus. This is amazing. The slave didn't have to go on some spiritual retreat in the wilderness to serve Jesus. He didn't need to run away from being a slave and go to Bible college so he could become a pastor to serve Jesus. No, he could serve Jesus by serving his master with a sincere heart, verse 5. Not by way of eye service, verse 6. Not working just when your master is looking like we're so often tempted to do, aren't we? Not as people pleasers, verse 6, but doing the will of God from the heart. The slave's genuine service of his master was genuine service to Jesus. This is where the Christian work ethic comes from. There's no longer any divide between secular work and sacred work. All the work we do, it's for Jesus. And just like you would work extra hard if the Prime Minister of Australia or the King of England asked you to do something, you might not even like them, but you would feel honoured if they asked you to do some work for them. How much more honour to work for the King of the Universe? A slave might have the most disgusting job, say cleaning the latrines. As they scrubbed them, they were working for Jesus. It changes everything. It's the same with the master. All that he did now was as a bondservant of Christ. It will change how he relates to his slaves. They're to leave off threatening, verse 9. And they are to follow Jesus and love their neighbor as they love themselves. So that's the first thing it meant then. Everyone had a new master. The second thing it meant was that everyone had a new performance review. See verse 8. The slave is to work with sincere heart, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This is actually something taught throughout the New Testament. Jesus will reward Christians for the work that they have done in their earthly lives. Do you remember Jesus said to build up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth? You see it in 1 Corinthians 3.14, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The doctrine of rewards is one we don't like to think about so much as Australians because we're so egalitarian, but it's actually a big motivation in the New Testament, and so I think we should pay more attention to it. One way I find helpful to understand it is to think of it like two waves of judgment that you experience as a Christian. There's the first wave of judgment that will determine your future, whether you'll go to heaven or hell. And that depends completely on whether your sins have been forgiven by Jesus. If your trust is in your own personal goodness, I can promise you it will not be good enough 
you'll fail the test, you will go to hell if your trust is in your own personal goodness. If your trust is in Jesus to forgive your sins like we so desperately need, you'll go to heaven. But then for Christians who are going to heaven, there's like a second wave of judgment. This isn't a judgment to determine your destination. You're already going to heaven. That's been secured by Jesus. It's a judgment where Jesus generously gives rewards based on what you have done as you have followed him. Do you remember in the parable of the talents? The man who earned 10 coins, he was rewarded with 10 cities. The man who earned five coins, he was rewarded with five cities. The man who started with one coin, he got Melbourne. Just joking. But, but the point of the parable is that God's rewards are overflowing. You think of coins, how much smaller are they than earning cities? God's rewards to his people are generous, abundant, overflowing. And so we should work for treasure that never fails, where moth and rust don't destroy. And the point in verse 8 is that whether you're a slave or a master, you should be working towards those rewards, not those of earth. The slave is interested in the performance review of Jesus, not of his master. And this is liberating. One preacher pointed out that this is the solution to overwork. You know, if you're someone who's so concerned that the boss sees you're doing a good job, and so you just put in huge hours to make sure you're seen, no. The solution to overwork is going, no, Jesus is my boss. I'll do a good, honest day's work, and I can put my tools down after that. It's also the solution to underwork, because you're not a slave to what your boss is looking at all the time. You're going, no, I want to serve my Lord Jesus, and so I want to do it wholeheartedly. You can do an honest day's work as a servant of Christ. The master needs to recognize that he has a performance review coming up that includes how he treats his slaves. In verse 9, there's no partiality with the heavenly master. He's not going to care if you're a master or a slave, so you need to take care of how you live before him. So that's what it meant back then. Everyone has a new master, and everyone has a new performance review. Our second heading is what it means for us today. And I have to say, if you've understood what it meant back then, then it should be pretty easy to understand what it means for you today. It doesn't matter what you're doing in your daily life, you are serving Jesus. We don't have masters and slaves now, but we still have corresponding positions, don't we, of superiors and subordinates. You might be a subordinate as an employee or as a student. You might be a superior as a manager or a partner or an owner. You can take the principles that applied back then and you can apply them to your situation. Now, of course, there will be differences. Employees aren't owned by their employers. You know, employees can negotiate better deals. They can quit, change jobs. But generally, the posture of the subordinate should be the same as the posture of the slave in the first century. And the first thing about that posture is that you are serving the Lord Jesus. If a slave, serving, if a slave was serving Jesus, cleaning the latrines in the first century, then you can serve Jesus when you write a report for your boss or you paint a wall for your foreman. 
or you study for an exam for your teacher. When you wake on Monday morning and brush your teeth, you can think, I am going to work for Jesus. You know, I'm going to school, uni, TAFE, for Jesus. If you're looking for a job, so often that feels like a job in itself, right? You're doing that for Jesus. If you're a full-time mum or dad, you can think, I am doing this for my master, Jesus. If you're a retiree, you can think of the different things that you do throughout the week. And you go, I want to do these as well as I can for my master, Jesus. Everything you do, you have a greater master than any boss that you might have here on earth. So work hard as if you're working for Jesus. Because you are. So obey your boss. I feel like every time we mention obedience to human authorities, we have to just clarify. It's not unconditional. Where there's a clash between obeying God and obeying men, you always obey God first. But for the most part, you can obey God and obey your boss. And so your posture to your boss, your boss should generally be one of obedience. Get there on time. Don't slack off scrolling through your phone. Do your homework. Work hard. Do it with a smile. Serve the customers well. Don't gossip about your teachers. Respect them. You're serving the Lord Jesus. Do all your work joyfully with an eye to serving Him. Don't get upset or angry if you're not noticed at work. Remember that your heavenly Lord sees you. There's a man at our church who owns his own business. I won't mention his name. Uh, but from every now and again, he'll come to me and ask if there are any um, young people coming up who might be able to work for him. And it's lovely. He's had people come and work for him, and he loves hiring new ones because he knows that they're trustworthy, they're honest, they work hard, and they do their jobs well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all Christians had a reputation like that? Not just with believing bosses, but with bosses who didn't yet trust in Jesus as well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they had a few Christians on their team and they were thinking, where do we get more of these folks from? They're my best workers. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that witness brought those bosses to know the much greater boss in heaven? What about the equivalent of masters today? What about the managers and the business owners and partners and CEOs and directors? What does this mean for you today? Well, first of all, if, if you're an employer, you're in a position to be a great blessing to so many people. In fact, you are. Not only are you supporting yourself and your family, you're supporting the people you employ and their families. That is a rich blessing that you're doing. I know it can be a stressful position, owning your own business, You've risked so much for it. It can make your blood pressure sore. But what a wonderful blessing to be able to pass on that blessing to others. The thing is, as businesses grow and staffing becomes more complex, it's easy for things to become impersonal. And it's important to remember that you still have the same master in heaven. And he cares much less about the bottom line than he cares about your employees. These are real people, eternal souls. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying the bottom line's unimportant. You can't bless any, anyone if your bottom line is going into the red. It's important. But much more important are the people. You need to treat them with the respect and dignity and honour 
that you have been shown by Jesus. In the decisions that you make, your number one boss cannot be profits. It can't be shareholders. It can't be your managers. The number one boss you need to consider is Jesus. We know in the long term, in the eternal scheme, that's what will be for the best. It's his opinion that matters most after all. But even in the short and medium term, you might find that some hard decisions that you make because you put Jesus first end up being the best for business because Jesus' ways are best. I was chatting with a friend this week who works for Anglican Youth Works and they've had a very hard time through COVID. They run Christian camps. So camps can't run, no money's coming in the door for them. You know what the executive team did at Youth Works? They were the first to take a, a cut to their pay. They were the first to take a cut to their hours. When things started coming back, they would get in and support the cleaning and catering teams at the campsites. What beautiful Christian leadership. I'll tell you what, my friend respects the executive team so much more because of what they did for him and the rest of the team during that time. Sometimes it really does pay off, even in the short and medium term, to put Jesus first. I know being in the position of the boss can be a difficult role, a lot of responsibility, stressful. But I really want to encourage people here who are our managers or directors or CEOs, be prepared to stand up for what is right because you're determined to put Jesus first, to answer to him as your master. I can't imagine how hard it is to take a principled stand in a boardroom when everyone else is putting profits first or putting media relations first, or putting their own skin first. It takes courage to stand up for what you know Jesus says is right. But it could be that God has placed you in this position for just a time such as this. So I want to encourage you, have courage. Remember that your ultimate master is Jesus. And he is a much better master than the fickle ones of money, comfort, or approval. So we've considered what this passage meant for people back then in the first century, and we've considered what it means for us. Let's pray that we can be a people who joyfully work for the Lord Jesus because we know whatever we do, we're serving him first. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We know that without him, we're doomed. We have nothing. We stand under your wrath, no forgiveness, no life, no relationship with you. We thank you and praise you for the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus to bring dead sinners like us to life. Father, it can be hard to work for Christ in this world, but we pray that you would give each and every one of us courage to serve Jesus first and foremost in everything that we do. Please, Lord, give us joy as we do that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This life